0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
1: Ada Calhoun is my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. Her new book, also a poet, is brilliant on so many levels. Ada presents us with the vibrant art world of New York in the 1950s and 60s, the complicated relationship she has with her father, the poet and art critic Peter Sheldahl, and at the center of it all is the poet Frank O'Hara. Like her previous work, St. Mark's Is Dead and Why We Can't Sleep, also a poet is impossible to define, but also impossible to put down. I spoke with Ada from my home in Miami while she was in New York City where she lives. Ada, welcome to the literary life. The last time we saw each other was I think it was like almost on Valentine's Day of 2020. Oh, we we're in the store to present Why We Can't Sleep. And um and then the whole world went to shit after that.
2: It did. That was a nice night, though, right before.
1: It was a beautiful night. But I have to say that in finishing, you know, also a poet, I realized what kind of a journey you've been on. You've been on an amazing journey that goes far beyond what the rest of us have gone through, actually. And what I, what I thought we could start with is just, just tell me, you know, how you came to be on that journey.
2: Sure. Um, Well, that was, it was so nice being there. And I'm so sad. I'm not there in person now, because it's one of my favorite stores in the entire country. And um, I always love seeing you so much. So thank you for having me here. Uh, Yeah, so uh, basically, I found these cassette tapes in my parents' basement in 2018. And I uh, found out they were from a project my father had started in 1976, the year I was born, and never finished. And I thought, I can finish this. And I was very very smug about it, um, and then all hell broke loose, and uh, he was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and my parents' apartment burned up in a freak electrical fire, and also my father-in-law died, my grandmother died. It was just, it was not not a great year, and then COVID hit right after all that happened.
1: And your father, of course, is the, um, the, the wonderful poet, critic, not so wonderful father at times. Peter Sheldahl. I, I don't even know how to describe this book that you wrote, actually. <laughs> kind of a, it's kind of a it's kind of a biography, memoir, biography, memoir. <laughs> uh,
2: yes, it goes back and forth.
1: Kind of a book of, you know, a, a book of wisdom, a oh. childcare and parenting book. It's all of this sort of wrapped in one. And I guess knowing you and your background and your writing history, I should have expected that from you, (laughs) that it would be something, you know, so undeniably unputdownable. And at the same time, you know, I learned so much about people who I knew just a little bit about. Let's start at the beginning, because Mm -hmm. although, you know, in retrospect, when, when I read about the fact that there was this incredible fire that you had you know, which comes later in the book that we realize it it makes everything else that much more poignant because there might have not been a book if that fire had happened somewhat earlier. So talk about what you found that really set you off on this journey.
2: Well, you know, when I found those tapes and I started to, um, to try to finish my father's biography, which was a Frank O'Hara, his hero, and um, the poet we both... Adored, um, kind of a patron saint for the household growing up. Um, I really thought that it would be a biography. I thought I would do literary history, just pure and simple. and um, and I really thought that where my father was not able to, to do certain things, I, I was. And, and he's a brilliant critic, a brilliant poet. Um, but as an interviewer, I thought I had had an edge, and I thought um, I thought I could do that book. When the fire happened and when everything else happened, um, the life kind of took over. And um, and then also when something even uh, honestly more disastrous for the project happened, which was running into some of the same trouble with the literary state that my father had, um, I wound up having to do something different than I'd originally planned. Um, and, and that was when it became more a memoir than a than a history. Although I think you're right, it goes back and forth.
1: Well, you know, you know, thinking of, you know, we're friends, so talking to you about, <laughs> yeah. But, but interviewing you with your background as a journalist, and what you went through um, after you were listening to these tapes, and what you tried to do in terms of thinking of it as a straight biography. There's a lot, there's a paragraph that you had that stuck with me, and I'm going to try to read it, and You were listening to your dad on a tape and you were getting really frustrated with him. Because basically what was happening is your dad was interviewing all of these people who knew Frank O'Hara, all of these very, very well-known people. And your father was not a very good interviewer, (laughs) Uh, right? We all know, we know that when you, because you provide the transcripts of these tapes, but you have this wonderful line where you're getting really frustrated, and you go, "Oh my God!" I shout at the tape recorder. You do this every time. They're trying to share feelings and memories, and you start, um, you start grabbing the years. You're dragging them to the analytical, boring side of their brains. Uh, you're trying to be some kind of Bohemian Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. I love.
2: Oh, thank
1: you. you know, because what it made me realize is there is an art to interviewing that you have and you've always had, you know, because your last book was that, right? The last book that you wrote, Why We Can't Sleep, is where you did a whole series of interviews uh, of, you know, of of Gen Xers. So it's quite an art, but there was one interview or one interaction that really turned this book into this book and not a straight biography. And and talk a little bit about, you know, the great Maureen O'Hara and and her impact on this.
2: Sure, so when I found these tapes and I heard that my father hadn't finished the book, I assumed it was his fault. I thought um, he's difficult. My mother used to joke that he should have business cards that read bridge burner so that when he's leaving a party, he can just throw them at the crowd um, to explain why he has just offended everybody. Uh, And I have made a point in my life of being polite and thoughtful and sending thank you cards and being good to people and writing recommendations and babysitting and being this very, um, this good girl, basically, and being uh, somebody that people would trust with their, you know, with their child, with their cat. Uh, with their will, with whatever it is, I am the person they call. My father's not that person. I assumed it was his fault the book hadn't happened. Um, and that if he had offended the executor of the estate, who was, as you mentioned, um, Maureen O'Hara, Frank's, Frank O'Hara's little sister, uh, who's now in her 80s, uh, it, it was it was him. And so I tried to court her. I worked very hard to court her I talked to people who knew her, how would she like to be approached? What would she like? You know, would she like me to interview her first and um and what could I do? Should I bring snacks? Why we inevitably have tea um and uh so when she finally responded, um, it was it was a shock to me, uh, some of the things she said she um she said that biography is not a good idea. Uh she said that his reputation, Frank or reputation is doing just fine. It doesn't need me. Um, and she questioned a lot of my motives. A lot of her questions, I think, actually were quite good. Why do this? Like, why do anything? Why bring up ugly things? And uh, so I think she gave me a great gift, even though she <laughs> she didn't like the project. Um, the questions she asked me, I, I think, were, were extremely helpful.
1: Well, what it did is it set you on course to create this sort of... You know, this sort of memoir, you know, this this father-daughter reckoning as a memoir with kind of the New York School poet <laughs> lurking in the background. Right. As a sentence. So tell us, you know, for those who aren't familiar, you know, with his work, talk a little bit about just the basics about Frank O'Hara. Why don't you, you know, just a mini bio of Frank O'Hara.
2: Sure, so he was a mid-century poet, educated at Harvard. He came from Grafton, Massachusetts. Um, He served in World War II uh, in the Navy. He uh, started writing poetry at Harvard. He originally thought he would be a musician and there's something very musical about his writing, um, something very funny also about his poems. Um, He was out as a gay man in the 50s, which took a lot of courage and he was known as being very brave. He was famously wonderful at parties. Charming, made people comfortable, uh, and just so alive, so vibrant, and passionate in every sense of the word. Uh, and his his book, Lunch Poems, is uh, one of my favorite books of poetry. A lot of a lot of people, I think, um, consider it one of their favorite books of poetry. It was published by City Lights, uh, and uh, and then his other book, Meditations in an Emergency, published by Grove, my publisher. And uh, I just, there's something about him that seems very spiritual to me, that seems very holy, even though it, they're not, it's not religious. And, I, and I've always cherished him.
1: You quote someone in the book, when you talk about that notion of strangely spiritual, do you remember that quote that you had where you say something about... There's you know, one from
2: Barbara Guest, um, where yes. she's talking. Yes, she, Barbara Guest says, he had that ability to focus on you to make you make you feel like you were the only person in the world. She said, it's like a 1930s or 1940s film star where it's only you and the moonlight.
1: And then there's also that great quote about, about God that we fail to recognize an elevated being simply because he's smoking a cigarette. God speaks through inebriated curators.
2: Yes, that's my friend, the poet Sparrow. Um, yeah. who I've been pen pals with since I was 14 years old. He used to do a zine called The 11th Street Ruse. Um, and and I wrote him a fan letter when I was 14 years old and we've been corresponding ever since.
1: No, I love that quote, which really talks to the I, the notion of, you know, people who, you know, on the surface, you, you really wonder about their spiritual depth, but then you realize that there is something very magical about them in one way or another.
2: Yeah, exactly. And um, and everybody who my father interviewed said something similar where there was something about him. There was something about him that was special. And of course he died very young. He was only 40 uh, in 1966. He was hit on Fire Island by a dune buggy in this freak accident. Uh, and I just, I think that the people who knew him they never quite got over it.
1: And I think what a lot of people who casually hear the name Frank O'Hara or the abstract expressionists or you know what was happening in the 50s and early 60s, they have a, you know, they don't really, at least I didn't always understand how interconnected they all were and what kind of a small world it actually was. So talk a little bit about, you know, about that milieu, about New York in those days, New York in the 50s. What it was like
2: So um, I, you know I was born in the in the 70s in New York, and I feel like by osmosis I sort of learned about that whole bohemian world. My father was at the at the end of it. he was known as the second generation New York school poet. but the first generation, they were focused on the the studios around 10th Street and the San Remo uh, bar and the Cedar Tavern and um, they all collaborated. there were poets and painters, they drink together, they slept together, they worked on projects together, and they went to lots of parties. Um, and there was something I think, very uh, countercultural about it because the 50s were obviously known as a relatively re- repressed decade. So they had to push really hard against it and and, and challenge social mores to have these, um, these, these different kinds of lives that they wanted to have. Um, sort of sexy, sexy, vibrant lives with cocktails and cigarettes and um, staying up all night talking and making art and writing. And um, so I had always thought of it as very glamorous myself. And uh, and I, I saw the vestiges of it in the life my parents lived in, in the 80s in the art world um, and in the people that I knew in the neighborhood of the East Village where I grew up, uh, I, when I was working on the book, I saw another side of it too, which was, it was not a great place for kids, right, and it was also not a great place for a lot of women, and uh, and it seemed it seemed as I was working on the book less glamorous than it had when I started.
1: Well, you have a great line. I mean, toward the end of the book, you know, after you've listened to so many of the tapes, and some of them are horrific. I mean. You know some of the some of the stuff from Larry Rivers and some of the others were really you know um, let's just say they weren't terribly likable some of these people and you have this in in exasperation you write you have a sentence where you go these people are the worst. (laughs)
2: yeah i think that was after it was at grace Hardigan, where she she gave a quote even much much later she's she, part of the smithsonian oral history project and she said something like she had, she had basically abandoned her son and she said oh but one of the one of the grandchildren looks like me so i think i want the grandchild around and nice. i still don't want the son she's like what a monster what a monster <laughs> you know these are people we're supposed to look up to and revere i don't know
1: well, it's what you always think about, you know, when you think about people revering Paris in the 20s and, you know, New York in the 50s and seems so exotic and interesting. But if you really were up close and personal with a lot of these people, they may not be <laughs> might not be such a nice thing. Yeah. And uh, particularly, but but actually, Frank O'Hara was a little bit different. I mean, you talked about children, you know, Frank O'Hara really had an affinity for kids. He you had this wonderful, um, this this wonderful interaction with Peter Matheson's and son Lucas, uh, who's actually about my age, actually, and he was only a kid when when uh, Franco died, but he became a real anchor for him, didn't he?
2: That that was that tape was the one that that surprised me the most, and that I found probably the most moving, and he. He was, he was so sad about Frank O'Hara having died. He was, he missed him so much. And he talked about them having food fights in the, um, in the Hamptons and then swimming in the ocean at night. And, um, and he was like a father to this, to this boy who was this child of Bohemians who did not have a lot of adults around him being very helpful or very thoughtful are very caring. And so he died, I think, when Lucas Matheson was about 12 years old. And he, the way he talked, it just, he said something about O'Hara having just this dignity about him that none of the other adults really seem to have.
1: You also describe that he was the kind of person who was really at the center of all this and kind of kept this whole crazy period from becoming unhinged. And a perfect metaphor for that. Was his funeral right about what mm. happened at his funeral? Uh, speak to that a little bit because you say that, or or you mention or somebody says on a tape that you know if Frank had if Frank if Frank had been at his funeral, which he was, he straightened <laughs> he would have straightened everyone out.
2: Right, right. right. So um, there was this, this some line about how when he died, he created widows of both sexes, where everybody felt like they had known him the best and. Um, and that they had been uniquely loved by him, and therefore they had pride of place at the funeral. And they were all um, just weeping and gnashing their teeth and rending their garments and uh, and behaving extremely badly. Just apparently at the funeral, they all got roaring drunk and were were acting out. And there, Lucas Matheson tells a story about Allen Ginsberg's partner, like masturbating on the deck during the
1: well, Peter during um... the
2: reception. Peter Olowski, exactly. And uh, which, by the way, when I read that, I thought that seems a little extreme. And this was, he was, a, you know, Lucas was a child, like maybe he misremembered. And I didn't want to put that in if that was so crazy. And I wrote to the Allen Ginsberg estate and I t- shared the story. And I said, does this sound like something you've heard or something that might have happened? And they said, huh, well, you know, I would associate that more with the way he behaved in the 80s. But I mean, you know, sure, it's possible. <laughs> I was like, okay, so I put that on the end note, just, you know, I don't know, take it for what it's worth.
1: No, but it was this whole thing with like, uh, you know, Ginsburg playing his
2: doing oh, little his flute
1: yeah, and his flutes. And you had other people, you know, and then Larry Rivers gave a
2: uh, oh at the graveside he gave this very um,
1: famous kind of
2: gruesome eulogy where he talked right. about seeing the Frank O'Hare's body in the hospital bed and the green skin and the, the discoloration and the broken bones and just this extremely visceral visceral and and disturbing to everybody who heard it uh eulogy that was not it was not about his soul about his body and and that uh, a lot of people were really upset by that, and yes, as you said, the flute and the and the and the chaos and the alcohol and all of it was. I think it was Lucas Mathen who described it as just bedlam.
1: But all of this is what, and your father was younger than most of these people, right? So your father was was indeed a second generation of this. But you know, the work of Frank O'Hara. Was a, was a kind of North Star in his life, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, and that's what I think was so interesting about listening to the tapes, was learning why he loved him. I loved lunch poems, and I didn't really understand what else my father had gotten from him, but I knew there must be a lot of things. And so hearing him do these interviews and, and what, he, what he saw in his, in his, his glamour, uh, the, his wit... And and his charm, I think that was something my father tried to emulate. And there was there was some I found poignant that actually Franco Harris had these other uh, these other qualities that I hadn't known about that that focused attention on people, the way that he loved people so well, and the way that he loved children, and how free he was. And those were things that my father did not take from him. And listening to those tapes, I really kind of wish he had.
1: So tell me a little bit about your father's background. He was from where and how did he end up in New York?
2: He was from Fargo, North Dakota and Northfield, Minnesota. His father was uh, G.T. Sheldahl, an inventor. He invented the air sickness bag, most famously. We're very proud. And he, he grew up in, in a really typical Midwestern family aside from having a, a sort of genius inventor father. He was the oldest of five children. His mother stayed at home, although she had wanted to be a writer very much. She wanted to be a journalist and went to journalism school actually uh, before she became the wife of a soldier businessman. Uh, And yeah, he he rebelled. uh, And and the reason he rebelled, and one of the tools of his rebellion was finding an anthology of poetry in which Frank O'Hara played a large part and thinking, I wanna be wherever this is being done and he moved to New York City, and he studied with Frank O'Hara's colleague Kenneth Koch, and he became part of that scene, kind of at the the tail end. He met O'Hara a few times at parties at the last one, which was only about a month before O'Hara died. Um, O'Hara signed a Nakian catalog to him at the Museum of Modern Art, and he signed it yours in Palship.
1: How did your dad get so involved in art? How did, where did, where did that interest in from?
2: Well, that was something that Frank O'Hara also did. He also reviewed uh, shows and he was immersed in the scene. And so I think my father saw writing about poetry or writing poetry and writing about art as really going hand in hand because of Frank O'Hara. When I was a kid, he reviewed art, or he wrote about art and um, for the Village Voice, which was our, our like, Hometown paper in the East Village and then uh, also he wrote for The New York Times and Art in America and a bunch of other places and when I was I guess in high school is when he got the job at the New Yorker as their art critic
1: and a wonderful art critic he was, you know Genius, I, yes I, he was genius. you know I in in preparing for this, I watched a few YouTube videos of him oh. you know during the New Yorker festival, which was always a very you know, very crucial marking, but it was probably about 10 years ago where he and Steve Martin were on stage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Steve Martin was actually interviewing him. Yes. Yeah. Which was yeah. really very cool.
2: No, and they're and they're friends. And and I, I think you said was um an art critic, but he's still working. He is still employed by the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, I know, but he's very he's very happy that he still he still has that job and he's still able to go see shows
1: the one thing that comes through loud and clear you know to his credit and also to his detriment I imagine in terms of your relationship with him is his number one passion in life was to write right I mean that's that's what he always wanted to do he always wanted to be when he got sick he he started I thought that was really funny he started writing his opus about his life right Mm -hmm. when he had; yes, they gave him about six months to live before the yeah. immunotherapy kicked in. So he wrote this gigantic thing. And then it turns out that the immunotherapy, it kind of worked, right? Mm-hmm. So he abandoned it. But so, <laughs> so what happens is he sent it to his New Yorker editor, who turned it into this remarkable piece, right?
2: It was really interesting. Um reading that because I feel like I did learn things about him and and it really confirmed a lot of things that I had I had always thought and one of the things he said in it was that he thinks about people he loves occasionally from time to time but he thinks about writing all the time and that sounded about right
1: yeah no it's it, it you you paint the beautiful picture of that so how's he doing now
2: He is frail and, um, but he is, you know, still hanging in there and, and he's writing every day.
1: That's great. That's really great. And, and what I think, what I hope, and what I saw in the book, and what's beautiful about the book is how you seem to have made a peace with your dad, right? Yeah. You, You say somewhere, here, which I, which really struck me, knowing your background as someone who basically grew up in St. Mark's place, right? I mean, how can you be at the more center of Bohemia <laughs> growing up in St. Mark's place? And you were, we children of Bohemia were older than our years, and the men of Bohemia were younger than theirs, right? And so you were always, you know, it's almost as if, you know my wife had immigrant parents. And so she always had to take care of them. Mm -hmm. It was almost if you had immigrant parents, (laughs) you were the one who was the steady one in the family, always taking care of, of them. So talk about your journey of really making peace with your dad.
2: Well, I mean, I started out trying to finish this project he started, which I thought would be great for us. I thought it would bring us closer together. I thought I would finish this thing that he had, had not been able to do. And so I think I was feeling a little competitive, like I could win. Uh, and I just thought it would be this wonderful thing. And then when all of these tragedies hit and I wound up having to take care of him in a, in a real way, in terms of taking him to doctor's appointments and cooking a lot of meals and, doing their insurance inventory when the house burned up. Um, I really had to confront our relationship and how how actually not, not great it was. I mean, I, he, I really felt like he had never seen me or found me interesting. And when he asked if I wanted to say anything to him as he was potentially facing death, I said, sure. And I, I said that, I said, I said, you know, I think he never really, I just think he never thought I was interesting at all. And I went home and I told my husband that I said, you know, why I I said all these things. And I, I think he heard me and why am I still feeling so bad? And Neil said, uh, oh, because when you said that you thought he'd tell you you were wrong and he didn't, uh, it, it was true. So what I basically had to do was make peace with the fact that he never had, and maybe never would. And that had to just be okay. That had to be. I, whatever he gave me, and I, and I count Frank O'Hara as one of the big things he did give me, that had to be enough, and I think it's been really interesting doing some book events since the book came out a couple weeks ago, and the reaction, a lot of people cried, <laughs> I've cried at events even, and, and cried reading it, because I think it brings up a lot about disappointment that we feel sometimes with people we, we love, and that we want to be closer to, and where for whatever reason, there's something very disappointing in, in the relationship, something a little unfinished. And uh, and that's that was true of my father. And so I feel like the book was was me was me putting it to bed. Uh, there are things I'll never get from him. And and I and I'm okay with it now.
1: But you know, it's interesting because there were snippets of things that you presented that kind of bubbled up. Which gave me a little bit of a, a more sympathetic insight into him and his relationship with you. When I forget what it was, you guys, you guys hung out, went to a movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sent you an email, said that you know if you weren't my daughter, I'd like you to be my. You know, I only wish that. My, you, what was that email? It was. Over- it's
2: a beautiful email. Yes, and he and he has these moments, like you say. He has really showed uh, showed great affection. And yeah, he said, if, I, if you weren't my daughter, I'd want you to be my poker buddy or my grocer or something like that, just yeah. so I could know you. And, and I do think he feels that way. And I think in his best moments, I think he expresses that. And I, I think in my best moments, I can really hear it.
1: But I think so, like so many men of his generation, in one way or another, there was something very narcissistic about him. And I know that was true with my own father. and you know, it was very hard for them. And I. it may be because of their fathers or their backgrounds. And it was very hard for them often to not you know, make it about themselves in one way or another and yeah. have themselves be the center of something.
2: I think you're right. And I think also I'll say like about the, his father, my grandfather, <laughs> my grandfather, um, you know, he he was not a good father to my my dad by all accounts he was very narcissistic he was obsessed with his inventions and my father not even that long ago was saying that his father didn't show him love that his father didn't didn't uh, take an interest in the things he was interested in and he was still very angry and my father's you know 80 years old and he's still mad and my father's my grandfather's been dead quite a long time and there was still this this rage frankly and, you know, I said, it sounds a little familiar. It sounds like how you were. And uh, and I've I've been working really hard to forgive you for it. And I think maybe you might want to try it, you know, with your own dad. But anyway.
1: Well, you know, you, you talk about sadness a lot and you talk about darkness a lot. You know, you, at one point you say, I didn't realize this period was as dark as it <laughs> after you listen to these tapes. But but knowing you over the years, there's nothing but lightness when I think about you.
2: Oh, thank and, you, Mitchell.
1: It's really true. I mean, and so through all of this, it's kind of interestingly miraculous that you have maintained a kind of um, optimism, a kind of you know, a kind of joy for learning about new things, a joy about life, and a certain kind of confidence that you have, I'm sure you have your own tape playing inside your head, <laughs> like we all do, but you, the kind of confidence that you have uh, could have been a gift from your father who didn't come down hard on you. I mean, he kind of, <laughs> you know, the other the other side of that is having a parent who just criticized you all the time or mm-hmm. who just with a heavy hand just you know, comes down on you. And you were left alone so often in your house. I remember you talked about your parents being in the Catskills, yet you were, as a 14-year-old, living in St. Mark's Place mm-hmm. in your apartment. I mean, God, if I could only have done that when I was four, <laughs> I don't think I would have been as responsible as you were.
2: Um, well, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not going to brag about how responsible I was. We did, I did get myself to my job on time, but you know, my, my friend Asia and I did did have very late nights. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. And that was a big realization during the book was that I'm so grateful to my father. I'm so grateful to him and, and my mother, both um, for the ways that they were good parents. And then also for the ways that they were bad parents, because it's hard to tease out, right? Which thing made you the person you are. Um, which which thing gave you the life you have and um, I have the best life I mean I have I have a wonderful family I have super close incredible friends I I really do appreciate every day Uh, and I I love writing and I I also love you know making breakfast for my kid and and I don't know I don't know how I how I was so lucky as to have that but um, but I, they didn't have nothing to do with it, right? So I have to be grateful for for everything.
1: The book was a joy to read. I mean, oh. there was a lot of darkness, a lot of sadness in it, but you know, your you know who you are shines all throughout it in so many different ways. Um, and and I I was so impressed with your circle of friends, and I was impressed with you know the love you showed for your two your two boys uh and your husband and your travels and you know it's a, it's a life well lived and uh i i think that so much of it comes you know i i guess my question is how much of it is hardwired to some extent as well <laughs> uh do you know what i mean a lot of yeah. it is hardwired. a lot mm-hmm. of it is who you are um and You know, that is a very sort of beautiful, impressive, impressive thing. I was wondering as well, when I read this, if you feel like as a writer, with what you did about the same on the St. Mark's book, what you did in the Gen X book, is this kind of a new genre that you've created in a way with this book? Do you feel like it's a very interesting way of getting into who you are? and describing what you're going through by bringing in and teaching us about other periods of time, you might say.
2: <laughs> that's really nice of you. I don't know if I can say, um, I can say, yes, I have created a genre. I think that's, that's for other people. If, if, if they think that, I, I've, I'm thrilled by the idea because I do, I do like the thought of just letting, letting the books do what they want to do even though they're all going to wind up in different parts of the bookstore and they might not be easily categorizable, but that, um, I mean, definitely felt that doing this book more than any of the others that I, I was not really driving the car, like that there was some, that the book was, was taking me somewhere and that I just had to kind of do what it wanted. And, uh, and I like, I like that. I liked it. I liked that feeling of, of, it was, it was a little bit of relief, not not having to uh to get out the index cards and, and map it out the way I did with and you know I,
1: I I could feel that relief coming off the pages oh. uh, after that last conversation with with uh, Maureen it was like oh, you could breathe <laughs> it was really upsetting and you said how difficult it was but it was like okay now I know <clears throat> And you did it so beautifully well. And I, I'm wondering, would you want to read a little bit from it?
2: Oh, sure. Yes. Let me grab, let me grab my book. Uh, maybe I'll just read, read a page about, um, about getting, getting the book, getting lunch oh, poems.
1: That would be beautiful.
2: OK, great. In one of my mother's efforts to have my father pay more attention to me, she sent him out to get me something. came back from the Strand bookstore with a stack of books, including W.H. Auden's The Dyer's Hand and Frank O'Hara's Lunch Poems. I read the Auden book and I liked it, but it went over my head. I was nine and I hadn't yet developed a high tolerance for literary exegesis. Lunch poems, though, that I loved right away. Whatever my father and I had in common that was good, I believed, was contained in that little orange and blue book from 1964. The poems seemed simple. They've been described as I do this, I do that poems. But they had a substructure and a music to them. People who dismissed them as light or frothy were fools, I thought. The poems were simple, like the Psalms are simple. The more times you repeat them, the more they reveal, not just the meaning of the words, but the message of the sound. They were about TV and Coke, coffee and movie stars, and yet they felt like incantations. My father had given me this book, which meant he wanted me to share in this thing he loved. He offered me so little as himself but this gift was important and felt protective, like a talisman. I could carry it around in my backpack, And read it on city buses and it could remind me that my father might not pay that much attention to me but deep down we understood each other by loving his favorite writer i could honor him the way other children might honor their father by joining his business
1: i can't tell you when i was moved as much by a book as i was with also a poet i want everyone to know who has not read this that it's 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 not dark it's not um it's not academic it's not a. It's not a biography. It's truly. It's got humanity on every single page, and I thank you for it. And I'm only sorry that I'm not seeing you in person.
2: Oh well, at the book fair, I'll see. I'll see you in the yes. see you in the fall.
1: That's I can't wait. There, I hope so. Ada Calhoun, thank you for being on the Literary Life.
2: Oh, thank you, Mitchell. It's really an honor always to see you.